Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Golden West Radio Network presents Crisis. Only young children and trained dogs have any real cause to play dead, I suppose. Although there's nothing playful about death, we can assume their motives at least are quite innocent. But what about the adult who plays dead? There's something strange and ominous in that. For as adults, we come to respect death. It will come to us all soon enough. So why provoke it? Why tempt it? But there are those who are unimpressed and unintimidated by the aspect of life's final mystery. Such are the men we shall meet in tonight's story. Two men who realize that while death cannot be cheated, it can be fooled. It's a macabre tale, best told with a hint of humor. Gallows humor, that is. I'll return in a minute with a baffling tale of suspense as Crisis presents Jeffrey David Bohm's gothic drama titled The Man Who Never Slept. It is near the end of the last century... We are in a cold and confining stone prison cell occupied by two men. One of them nervously prepares to leave, while the other man watches, thankful that he is to be left behind. What time is it? Well, they took my watch, but as a guess, I'd say it's right on seven o'clock. They're right on time. They always are. I'm afraid it's time, sir. Quite all right. I've been up for hours. Well, old fellow, good luck in the next world. And good luck to you in this one. I'm only sorry our friendship was so short-lived. Perhaps we'll meet again. Perhaps. I would say it's a certainty. Yes, I suppose so, but you'll have to be patient. Oh, I have all the time in the world. Shall we go, Warden? So this is what it's like. I've often wondered. At least a dozen men have made this gallows walk on my account. And now I am one of them. How is it that I now find myself in this unlikely situation? Or you might well ask. And I'll tell you. It all has to do with that young gentleman with whom I have just exchanged such pleasant farewells. His name is Marion Thigpen. A curious name... But then Mr. Thigpen is a curious sort of fellow. Indeed, curious is a far too charitable description. For the man is a fiend, perhaps the greatest villain I've ever known. The year was 1889. Marion Thigpen was a second-year medical student at the Ann Arbor Doctors' College and, from what I understand, a most promising student at that. He shared a small room near the campus with one Reginald Greenleaf Allworthy. Reggie to his friends... A lad notably lacking in good sense, as you shall shortly discover. It was on a warm August night that the villainy buried deep inside Marion Thigpen's heart first began to surface. Reggie! 
Are you awake? Hmm? Listen carefully to me, Reggie. Are you listening? Hmm. Good. I think you'll be very interested in what I have to say. I was assigned a cadaver in school today, Reggie, that, with all due respect, resembles you in a most uncanny way. It occurred to me that you had recently taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy. Now, if you were to make me the beneficiary of the policy, and if that cadaver were found in your bed tomorrow morning, well, dear Reggie, need I go on? We both would realize a very handsome profit of $5,000 on the arrangement. Well, Reggie sat bolt upright in his bed. He was failing in his classes anyway, and perhaps this was just a thing to avoid the embarrassment and dishonor of being expelled. Certainly his family would think so. And besides, a young man in his prime can have quite a time of it on $5,000. That very night... As Reggie waited outside in a horse-drawn cart borrowed from a local merchant, Marion broke into the school morgue where the cadavers were kept. There we go. Nice and easy. There they were laid out on the cold cement floor like so many baby whales washed up on shore. There were 20 cadavers in all, each one covered by a heavy gray sheet. Even the strongest and most callous of men might have stopped and reconsidered at this point, but not Marion. He hesitated not a bit, but began immediately to pull away each sheet one by one. No. No. No, not you either. Reggie, where are you, Reggie, old boy? The last one. You might know. Then, as if he were the devil himself carting off the damned, Marion lifted the cadaver up and threw him across his shoulder. Up we go. <clears throat> In less than a moment, man and corpse were safely outside. Reggie, back the wagon over. Come on, back it up. Hold it. Hold it right there. Come on, fellow. In you go. campus tower sounded the death knell. Several members of Reggie's fraternity sported black armbands for a day or so, and a moment of silence was observed during lunch. Attendance at the chapel services was disappointing, and Marion would have it no other way. The less attention, the better. Later that day, an insurance inspector arrived to check the body, and being young and inexperienced and not much inclined to his sordid job, positive identification was made almost immediately and the check for $10,000 arrived in the mail the following week. The split was made and the two men parted company far happier and more prosperous than when they had first met. Uh, Marion disappeared totally but Reggie turned up several months later in New York City at the Rat's Tail Tavern to be exact. The notorious Rat's Tail Tavern, gathering place for the worst thieves and cutthroats Hell's Kitchen had to offer. It's true, I tell you. I beat the blood-sucking insurance company. They buried a cadaver. Well enough, but it wasn't me. 
Because here I am, right? <laughs> uh, one of the customers in the tavern was a tough named Patrick Donovan. Now, he'd been listening to Reggie's bragging talk and sidled up to him and took his arm. Your story fascinates me, laddie. But it's too noisy in here to do much talking. Tell you what, there's a nice little restaurant down the street away. Why don't we put a bit of food in our stomachs and the treats on me? But it wasn't food that Donovan planned to put in Reggie's stomach. No, it was his fist. Tell me his name. <coughs> the name of that genius friend of yours. Or I'll leave you dead in this alleyway. Marion. Marion Thigpen. And where can I find this Marion Thigpen? Tell me, quick. Baltimore. Baltimore, huh? Thanks, laddie. Thanks a lot. Oh, one more thing. I'll take whatever you got left of that $5,000. It wasn't much, only $600, but Donovan took it. There was a train leaving for Baltimore the next day, and Donovan took that too. He held a small pad in his hand and wrote the same name several times. Marion Thigpen. Marion Thigpen. Curious name, he thought. Shouldn't have any trouble remembering a name like that. Shouldn't have trouble finding a man with a name like that, either. Donovan arrived in Baltimore and checked into the Alexander Hotel. He had a light lunch and then began asking questions. As expected, Marion Thigpen proved to be anything but difficult to find. As a matter of fact, he was staying in the Regency Hotel directly across the street. And Donovan located a comfortable bench in the small park next to the hotel and began his vigil. Uh, several hours later, Marion appeared from the hotel lobby dressed in the height of fashion. Frock coat, high hat, cloak and cane. Heads turned as he made his way down the boulevard. Donovan mashed his cigar into the ground and followed. He followed Marion to the home of Judge Leon Toomey, where Marion called on the judge's charming niece, Rebecca Lynn Toomey. He followed them to a restaurant, and he followed them to the opera. He followed them all night, in fact, and in no way tried to hide the fact that he was doing so. He made quite a show of it, actually, taking every opportunity of catching Marion's eye. Finally, Marion could tolerate it no more. Will you excuse me, please? Marion rose from his chair, crossed the crowded cafe, and took a seat at Donovan's table. Listen here. I don't know who you are, but I have a pretty good idea of what you want, and I will not allow you to harass me this way. You must have made a mistake, laddie. Please, don't insult me. You've made yourself perfectly obvious all evening. Who employed you? Veronica? Marie? I'm afraid I never had the pleasure. Look here, then. If you haven't been sent to find me by one of my wives, then One who? of your wives. My, my, you have been a naughty boy. Who are you? I've brought you a message. A message? From whom? From a dead man. I... I don't understand. I've brought you a message from Reggie Orwell. Reggie Orwell? Here's where I'm staying. Be there at one o'clock this morning. Donovan returned to his room to await his visitor. 
One o'clock came, but Marion Thigpen did not. Two o'clock? Three o'clock? And still he did not show. And then... You disappoint me, Mr. Thigpen. Huh? Don't move. I've got a pistol pointed right at your heart. Turn up the lamp a little, would you? There. That's better. Now drop your gun. Look what you've done. You've assassinated my pillow. Did you really think I'd be lying there in bed waiting for you to kill me? I had hoped you would be, yes. Sit down, won't you? Tell me, have you ever heard the motto, we never sleep? It has a familiar ring. Does it now? It's the motto of the Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. You're a Pinkerton? Quite correct. Patrick Donovan is the name. I'm currently working for the Fidelity Mutual Company. I investigate insurance frauds. I'm beginning to understand. I suppose you've already arrested Reggie Allworthy? On the contrary. He convinced me to let him go. He did? How? With a little information... And $600. I found them both very convincing. Uh, then it's blackmail you have in mind. Well, you can just forget it. I don't no, have it. No, no, not so fast. Now I'm not a blackmailer. Lucky for you, I'm not. Two wives. You almost make it too tempting to refuse. But no, blackmailing's not my style. Mr. Donovan, you try my patience. Just what is it you want from me? I'm very sorry that I'm trying your patience, laddie, but inasmuch as I've got this pistol leveled at your heart, I think you'll just have to put up with me for a bit longer. Very well. But if you kindly come to the point... The point is that three years ago, my wife, Ida, took out a life insurance policy on me in the sum of $10,000, making herself the beneficiary. Now, here's where you come in. You're going to find a cadaver, just like you did for Mr. Allworthy, and you're going to fake my death, just like you did for Mr. Allworthy, and you're going to help me collect the $10,000, just like you did for Mr. Allworthy. And in return, I'm to gain my freedom. Is that right? There's a bright boy. I'll need some time to come up with a plan. Well, it's now 4 o'clock in the morning. I'll give you until 12 noon. Meet me in the restaurant downstairs. And don't get any funny ideas about leaving town. I'll have my eye on you. Marion had gotten no sleep that night, and he certainly wasn't going to get any now. He returned to his hotel room and began to think. Well, well, right on the button this time. You have a plan? Yes, I believe so. Good. I'm all ears, as the saying goes. Marion's plan was quite simple, really. A cadaver would be obtained from a doctor friend of his for a small fee, and Marion generously offering to pay for it himself out of his own pocket. That problem solved, he only had to come up with a cause of death, something convincing enough in its circumstances, yet violent enough to obscure the cadaver's true identity. Run, run over by a freight train? It would certainly do the trick. But why would I be run over by a freight train? You're going to commit suicide. Suicide, ah. Uh. Mm. I've checked your policy. There's a two-year waiting period on suicide claims. And you said your wife took out the policy when? Three years ago. Three years, that's right. So we wouldn't have any trouble on that score. Now, 
I know a stretch of track where the bushes hide the engineer's view. By the time he sees the body on the track, it will be too late. Yes, I see. Of course, a suicide note in your own hand will be found by the side of the tracks. And as to your wife, you said she is named as the beneficiary? Well, that's good. It will arouse less suspicion. We must inform her of the plan, however. We will need her to identify the body. Also instruct her to turn the $10,000 over to me for delivery to you. Why can't she bring it to me herself? Oh, come now, Mr. Donovan. You're a detective. You should know better than that. What if she's followed? Oh, you're right. I wasn't thinking. That's all right. I'll do the thinking. Now, here's the map. Meet me the day after tomorrow at exactly 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And don't be late. Remember, we have a train to catch. You're late. The train is almost here. Did you bring the note? Right here in my pocket. Where's the cadaver? Behind these bushes. Give me a hand. Where? I don't see it. Here, behind this bush. Where? Right there, you fool. Marion saw no reason in throwing good money after that. Why pay for a cadaver to impersonate Donovan when Donovan himself could so easily play the role? He took the note from Donovan's pocket and dragged the body to the railroad tracks and not a moment too soon. Mrs. Ida Donovan soon arrived to identify the body. Marion put her up in the Regency Hotel where he visited her daily until the insurance check arrived and was turned over to him. And thereafter, his visits were less frequent, and each time Ida would ask, Where's my husband? When will I see him? Oh, she was a figure to be pitied. Marion could keep the truth from her no longer. Madam, I have distressing news. It appears that we're both the victims of a monstrous hoax. I thought that I was assisting a man in avoiding the merciless vengeance of his creditors. But I now discover that I have unwittingly aided your husband in a scheme to run off with another woman. You will never see him again, I'm afraid. He has taken a boat to Brazil where I'm sure he will live in splendor on his insurance money. I am very sorry. Poor Mrs. Donovan fell to the floor and began to sob uncontrollably. There was no consoling her. Her grief was too great. That evening, she took her life. As for Marion Thigpen, he quietly slipped away and was not heard of until nearly one year later. While shopping in Woolworths for a new pair of spats, he came face to face with Veronica, his first wife. Now, you are probably wondering how I have come by all this information and what part I play in this sordid tale. Well, the answer to the first part is simple. I have spent the last few days in the same prison cell with Mr. Thigpen as a man condemned to hanging. As the dead have nothing to fear from the living, so too do the living have nothing to fear from the dead. Therefore, Marion saw no reason why he should not unburden his soul to me on the eve of my execution. I don't think the morning will ever come. It'll come soon enough. Talk to me, would you? I'm certain to go crazy. Talk? About what? I don't care. Talk about yourself. You want to hear about me? Yes, I do. All right. I guess it can't hurt. Not now, anyway. But I warn you, it will make your hair stand on end. Go ahead. 
Tell me. You see, you see, I'm in here on a bigamy conviction. But if they found out the things I'm really guilty of, they'd have to hang me ten times over. And then he told me the story I've just told you. But what about me? What is my story? What is my crime? Why do I now stand on these gallows while that monstrous fig pen watches from his cell window? Why is this hood being placed over my head and not his? Why is this rope being slipped around my neck and not his? And why am I to be hung in this lonely brick courtyard and not he? You all right, Mr. Pauly? I'm fine. Didn't feel a thing. My compliments to your executioner. The rope broke perfectly. You Pinkerton sure have some mighty strange methods. Well, methods don't mean much, Warden, unless they also get results. Well, whatever you say. Now, is there anything else we can do for you? Yes, I'm I'm anxious to get back to my hotel and take a hot bath. Might I borrow your coach? Oh, of course. I'll have it brought around for you right away. Thank you so much. Now do you understand? My name is Amos Pauley. I'm a Pinkerton agent. Like Patrick Donovan, you say? No, not quite. Donovan was an agent, but a bad agent. And an idiot into the bargain. He got no less than he deserved. But still, when a fellow agent is murdered, something must be done. It's a crime that cannot go unpunished. The agency cannot be embarrassed in this way. It took me only one week to link Donovan's so-called suicide to Marion Thigpen. And it took me one solid year to track down Thigpen himself. When I learned he was serving time for the ridiculous crime of bigamy, I had myself put into the same prison cell with him. An agent's job is half completed when he knows his suspect is guilty. And now I know that Marion Thigpen is guilty. And Marion Thigpen thinks... That I am dead. In three months, he'll be released from prison and I will be there watching him. I will follow him wherever he goes and see whatever he does. And eventually he will slip and make a mistake and I will be there. Then I've got him. I will not fail in this endeavor. I cannot fail. I am a Pinkerton agent and I never sleep. Man Who Never Slept was written by Jeffrey David Bohm. I'll return in a moment with the names of tonight's players and a word about next week's crisis. The Man Who Never Slept featured Michael Morgan Dunn as Amos, Ross Perry as Marion Thigpen, Griff Cadnier as Reggie, and John Gilbert as Donovan. It was written by Jeffrey David Bohm and directed and produced by Jim French at Audio Recording Incorporated in Seattle.